Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back. It's Fit Nation. All right, welcome to the Misfit Nation. George Seagal. Seagal, I'm sorry. George is the owner of Move the World Films and has directed and produced The Last House Standing and licensed a parent. He also created Move the World Podcast. How are you, George? Welcome to the show. I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you today, Rich? Uh, very well, very well today. Uh, like I said earlier, uh, we're, we're all upright today. It's good things here in Tennessee. Yeah. So, George, tell us a little bit about your backstory. How did you get into filmmaking or why did you want to become a film owner, a film company owner? Well, I was in the TV news business for a number of years. I was a weatherman, uh, hosted a morning show. I did a sports trivia game show. I did a bunch of different things. And, um, you know, there's the nice thing about being in that business is you get paid well. The downside is you've got some corporate muckety mucks telling you what you can do and not do all the time. And um, you're just doing the same thing every day. And so uh, when I got out of that business, I wanted to start my own business where I could create things and do things. And so I started a video production company, eventually evolved into making documentary films. And I made I've made two documentaries so far, the the license to parent, which is about the parenting problem in this country and how anybody can be a parent with no requirements whatsoever. And we see the cost of that on a daily basis. And then uh, the last house standing, which is about how we build houses in places that are vulnerable and we're just ripe for disaster when a major weather disaster occurs. And, um, you know, and it's the same cycle year after year of people getting uh, destroyed by major storms and then having to rebuild. And the, the film focuses on are we building to a high enough standard now with the disaster that just happened in Kentucky and where you guys are in Tennessee? If you're a bullseye of a major tornado, there's probably nothing that's going to going to help you. That's what the experts in our film said. But when you look at the center of where the tornado hits and then fan out to the left and the right how far would you get from that center, how your house is built or your business is built can have a major factor on whether or not it gets destroyed. And the code's pretty weak in a lot of areas. So it's tragic for what happened there, but it's going to be interesting for them to study what, what could have been different. But a lot of that is just, it's just horrific to look at. Right. Definitely. And 
a few years ago when Harvey hit Houston. Uh, I was about to move to Houston at the time with my old job. And I went down there looking at houses, came back, Harvey hit. So I went back with my job to help uh, remediate some stuff. I went to a woman's house and it was the third time her house was basically hit with the, the floods. They had to rebuild the whole inside out. So insurance wasn't paying anymore because it's been done twice before to the same house. But she had no recourse to leave because of her current situation financially. Sure. And a lot of people in Houston with, with Harvey, tragically, um, were not in a flood zone. So they could have purchased flood insurance for an affordable price. You know, if you're in a flood zone and your house isn't built to the proper standard, it's a fortune to have flood insurance. But if you're outside the flood zone for three, four hundred dollars a year, you can probably get a policy that will cover you. And, and that's what we're seeing in a lot of places around the country now. We saw it with um, one of the hurricanes this year that hit the Gulf Coast and, and didn't do a lot of damage there. But when it got up into the northeast part of the country, did an incredible amount of damage where people never thought they would be affected by a storm like that. And the, so the point of our film is really you got to have you've got to be your own best advocate in every aspect of your life. You have to know what your insurance is, what the structure you're living is, what your vulnerabilities are how you would uh, evacuate if there was a disaster, what your chances are of surviving it. There's so many things, but most people don't think about that until after a disaster. And then they, then it's too late at that point. Yeah, it's definitely too late after uh, we first moved yeah. back here. We moved here from Korea in uh, 2010, just after the thousand year flood hit here in middle Tennessee, Nashville, all middle Tennessee got flooded out pretty bad in 2010. So we got here about a month later. And they were basically still mucking stuff out at the time and saying, oh, this house is fine. You can move in here. I was like, the river's right there. I don't want to live right next to a river. After what just happened, I don't want to do that. Let's move a little further away. And then we bought our house. They said, do you want flood insurance? Yes, I want flood insurance. So it was an option, but we took it right away. Well, I used to live in San Antonio, Texas, and there were uh, storms there when, when hurricanes would hit. A lot of times when there's a lot of rain, we wouldn't get the damage from the wind, but we would have flooding. And people who live two miles from a river would have flooding. That's how high the water would rise. So you need to know so many different factors. Where is, are the water sources? Is there a dam upstream of where you live? That was one of the problems with Harvey. And you really have to do your due diligence to know all these things because the realtor's not going to tell you. You know, they're not going to tell you anything. They want to sell a house. You know, they'll... They might tell you if you ask, what are the schools like? It's probably in the listing, but nobody is going to save you like you can save yourself. And there are resources on our website, thelasthousestanding.org, that you can go and, and find out what flood zone you're in, what you can do to possibly fix up your house. It's a lot of information that people should really digest. And you have to take it seriously. You can't just say, oh, it's a pretty house. I love the, ca- the countertops and it's got a nice backyard for the kids to play in. You got to know more than that. You got to understand... Uh third order effects if something happens at that point buying a house absolutely is a big it's a big event life event buying a house and you don't want that house to just go because you didn't take care of it or have the right precautions in place to help you later right and and if you if you don't do the work nobody's going to do it for you and then once the disaster happens you've got to deal with the the criminal element that comes in trying to rip people off after a disaster because now people are trying to profit off of your misfortune and, you know, when we went to Mexico Beach after Hurricane Michael, there were people that rolled up there and for $10,000 were telling people they could put a tarp on their roof to stop the water from getting in. Wow. I mean, if, if you went on a normal day and, and had somebody do that, might be a couple hundred bucks to throw a tarp up there, $10,000. But when water's pouring into your house and all your stuff's getting ruined, that's a white knight that's there to help you. And it, a lot of times those people 
are not what they appear to be. And, you know, we met some people that were shady people when we were there that were showing us around that uh, ended up ripping off some of the homeowners. They would, oh, wow. they would take their insurance over. So the insurance company had to pay them to do the work. And then they didn't do the work. So it's just uh -huh. once you are a victim, you really lose control of your destiny at the time when you're most vulnerable. And that's what's heartbreaking is because, you, you know, you have a family, you have to get to work, you have to get your kids to school, you don't have it. It just everything spirals. And all the people we talked to in The Last House Standing, the common theme was they never thought it would happen to them. And then once it did, it just it's very hard to recover from. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, they're the wolves in sheep's clothing that come down there to help or the, the white knight come down on their horse saying, we'll help you. And they usually prey on the person that is probably at their weakest point in their life at that point. And yeah, I like to say I compare it to if, if you've ever been out in the field at night and you put a flashlight on or put a light on and all the insects and things that come out of the woodwork mm -hmm. and they're just drawn to that light. That light is you in a disaster. And then everything's coming at you because you're, you're going to get good people. There's the first responders are usually awesome. And the people that, that are there to, to help you, there's a good nucleus of people, but it's the ones that are there to prey on you that just, we hear stories all the time. It happens every time there's a disaster, it brings out the good and the bad in people. Definitely. And most, a lot of bad comes out of every, every disaster that happens. You're going to have that bad element from you've seen it in 2005 with Katrina. It was horrible in Katrina across the whole Gulf Coast there. And then Harvey was the next highlight in that region of large storms after that. And then now we're having all these other weather events throughout the entire country now where you just see this prey out there and they're like sheeps. The sheep are getting chased by the wolves a lot now. Yeah. And, you know, on my uh, Move the World podcast, which is I, I set up this podcast to have people on. And the goal is there's people out there that in their job or in their life are doing something to make the world a better place for other people. So if you have an idea or a thought of something you want to do, these are people that are doing those things. And it inspires you to to try your ideas and to get out there and do things. And some people I've had on are climate experts, and they talk about, you know, climate change and global warming and how the earth is changing and the effects it has on people. And, you know, even if you talk about something like climate change, it, it becomes a political argument with one side saying, oh, it's not a big deal. The other side saying, oh, we have to do something dramatic. And, and my point with the podcast and with my films is, OK, let them argue about that. Even if they argue about it and try to solve the problem, it may not be solved in our lifetime. Meanwhile, you could be destroyed and wiped out by storms 50 times over if you're not prepared. So the fact that there's so much debate over such an issue, which shouldn't be a controversy, it should be pretty black and white, is, is an, uh, the, the signal for us to say, well, we have to control our own destiny. We can't just sit around and wait for somebody to tell us, okay, yep, the storms are getting worse. You better move away from there. No, you need to do your work and find these things out. Let the experts hash this stuff out. And, you know, if you have a chance to vote, that's where you can weigh in. Or if there's a chance to lobby for stronger building codes, that's where you can weigh in. But you can't let the argument stop you. You can't just get in a, uh, an argument with somebody about, yeah, I think climate change is horrible. We have to start using paper straws. And that's not going to solve the problem. That's really not. We got to do more than that. And the paper straws will actually hurt the problem because you're taking away some of the trees that help us at that point by making the paper. So. And they ruin a smoothie. 
exactly. you're trying to drink a smoothie with a paper straw, it sucks. So it ends over literally, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah, or it doesn't suck. I guess you yeah. could say, yeah, it's pretty bad. So you had a pretty diverse uh, moving a career, moving up weathercaster, newscaster. Then you said tr- sports trivia. That's a pretty cool thing. Uh, well, I'm sure that was great in bars and stuff, or at parties at house house parties and stuff. And then you yeah, there was a show called Time Out for Trivia. Time out we for were tri- a, the the financial news network on weekends was a sports network, and we would do this show called Time Out for Trivia, where we would ask questions, and people would win prizes. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> I bet is people love that stuff and. Secretly, they don't want to talk about it, but they do love sports trivia. They have all this mountain of knowledge in the back of their head they don't even realize it's there, and it pops out at their worst times. <laughs> yes, definitely. But that was, that was a fun job um, until um, CNBC bought our company and just fired everybody. So we were all out of work. Thank you. That makes it not CNBC. fun anymore. <laughs> no, that, t- that sucked the trivia right out of me. That was not fun. So you had time behind the camera and in front of the camera before you started the, pod, the your podcast and, of course, your uh, documentary filmmaking. Was it an easy transition? You know, I think it was. I, I think there's downsides when you're in front of the camera. You, you First of all, you always have to look good. You have to maintain a certain, you know, not like you and I look right now, but, but just you have to be presentable. You have to wear a lot of makeup. You have to you have to be concerned about wardrobe and all those things. And um, and then people know who you are whenever you're out and about, you know, so that's, you, you get rewarded for it financially, but you also have to put up with all that stuff. You know, when you're just a podcaster or a film director or whatever, you're a little more behind the scenes. And, um, I enjoy that. So you get a little combination of both. I mean, our podcast is on video, but you know, I'm wearing a t-shirt. Um, right. I'm, I don't have a, any makeup on, so, <laughs> which is probably scary to people that are, that are watching, but, um, you know, it's just different. It's, I guess different would be the word. Yeah, I like the podcasting realm. I just started going into the video side of it about a month and a half ago. Uh, a guest actually recommended it to me. He said, your podcast needs to be on video. So I don't think I'm lo- I look good enough for video, but whatever, we'll do it. And, and I just started doing it this way. It's actually easier to record this way. So I have a better time this way. Like you said, it's easier. Not a lot of stress in a podcast. And the anim- anonymity of the audio side is perfect. <laughs> Yeah, it's a different standard to what you have to be be presenting when you're on there, but it certainly helps for marketing it and having people know the face behind the voice. Um, but as you you probably know, I mean, I don't know how long you've been doing it. It's a challenge finding an audience for a podcast. I mean, there's million, there's like two million people that are podcasting um, now. There's hundreds of millions that are listening, so that's the good news. Right. But the the bad news is you got to come up with a way to to get people to hear your message and hope that they get into listening to your program. That's, that's the challenge. It's the same with anything. It's just on a smaller scale than, uh, than the news business. Right. And like you said, the pool is very deep here with podcasting. And everyone thinks when you start, you're going to be Joe Rogan right away. There's only, yes. one, there's only room for one Joe Rogan. And he has, he has there, a big thought. So, yeah, yeah. And, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, everybody that has a cell, uh, an, an iPhone thinks they're a filmmaker. It's like everybody... The, the good news is social media opens up opportunities for everybody. The bad news is it, it opens up opportunities for everybody. <laughs> and, um, you know, some things should be, you know, not everybody can do everything. You know, it's like there may be a guy that's a great accountant or a woman that's a great uh, accountant or designer or doctor. That doesn't mean they're a good communicator on camera. So everybody has their own skill set. The nice thing about podcasts is it allows you to try things and find it. I don't, I don't think you should be locked into any one thing just because that's what you're doing. And 
So, you know, somebody like Joe Rogan, his background, whatever he was doing before, look at how he's turned that into a successful business. And it, it's pretty amazing. And that's what everybody shoots for. They go, I want to be like that. Why not? I want to do it without having to eat rats on Fear Factor. That's all I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> There's some things we just won't do to be successful. <laughs> I'll, I'll stop the line right there. I'm not eating a rat. I'm good. Yes. No, that's I really where I draw to. the line. If I have to, I guess, but to live maybe. <laughs> I won't do it. I was on a um, uh, one of those uh, uh, airboats in the swamps of Louisiana. We were doing a travel show. And they were telling me that people um, along the coast of Louisiana and Texas all catch the rats and cook them. I think it's called Nutra or I something along those yeah. lines. That just made me sick. I'm, I, there's, there's nothing I want that badly where that's going to become appealing to me. I'm when, I think, when I think of rats, I think of the ones I grew up with when I was uh, living in New Jersey and seeing the ones in the New York City subway that are bigger than me sometimes. I'm good. They can stay yeah. down there in the tracks. I'll stay up here. I'll throw I was crossing the, the street one time in New York and somebody yelled, hey, look out. And this just this line of rats were running down along the curb, you know, right below the top of the sidewalk. And it's like, wow, I could have stepped in that. That would have been screaming like a Yeah, I wouldn't have handled that well at all. There's no doubt. Keep my shoe, keep my shoe and run away. <laughs> yeah, I would be running away and crying. So I think your, your one documentary on licensed parent that's a spot on target. Uh, we need a license to drive, we need a license to carry a gun. A license for almost anything, but anyone can be a parent. And I think you, with that one there, I'm sure just people think it's controversial, but I think it's something that needs to be said. And how did you come on that topic? Well, you know, I, you just see so many examples of bad parenting in the news all the time. And, you know, it, it's who do you blame? Is it the child's fault? Is it the parent's fault? And it's like, I always say to people, if you had to take a test to become a parent, you had to pass the test. Do you think they would have let you have children? And the answer is probably in a lot of cases, no, they would not. But people in a, in a country where we're so strong on our rights, we have the right to do anything we want. Everybody thinks, and, and I'm not suggesting, the film ultimately does not suggest you should have a license. It's more of a be aware of what you're doing and the responsibility. It's not just a few years responsibility. It doesn't stop when the child's 18. That's your kid for life. That doesn't mean you have to support them. But what you do with that child and put out into the world has a cost to society. If you raise a good kid, they're proactive uh, and, and, and contribute to society and have, have a value where society makes money from them. If it's a bad child, the cost is over the top bad for what they cost society. I think it's like, it could be 1.4 million. I don't even remember the statistic, but the cost of turning out a bad child is, is unbelievable. And, and you see examples of, you know, tragic shootings in schools and, and things that happen. And you can't always just point towards the parent. I know in the last one, you probably can because yeah. they bought the kid the gun. But in some instances, parents can't control everything. But you certainly see examples of when they could have been more involved. You know, even the, the Gabby Petito case with the, with the parents for Brian Laundry. you know, what did they know? What did they do? You know, they let their kid go out into the woods with a gun when he was obviously unstable right. because he killed that girl. And man, if the, what kind of parenting is that? You know, if, are you a parent? Do you have kids? I have one daughter, 25. Yeah. I mean, I think about what I would do if, if I was in that situation. And I, I, I really think I would have turned my child in and hope they could have gotten help. So there's just, there's, those are the bad examples. But then there's just examples of 
you know, people who, who, who let their children grow up and do whatever they want. And then they go out into society and do whatever they want. And the point is we need to support parents more. We need to have more parental education. We need to, need to make it more of a community thing so we can help each other because if the people next door to me, their children are going to affect all of us. They're getting in cars and driving. Right. They're going to be out in, in the community. And people need to take the job really seriously because it does affect everybody. We're not living on compounds out in the woods where if you lived in one of those, you could do anything you want until okay. those kids start wandering into town. <laughs> and then it becomes everybody else's problem. Then it becomes a we problem, not just a you problem at that point. Exactly. <laughs> yep. That's a, that's a good point that both those cases, uh, last week's case was, uh, especially was horrible. Like you said, the parents, it's uh, all, all eyes, all lines pointing them buying that gun, giving it to them and then fleeing. They fled after he was arrested, which is, I mean, that's textbook. I'm guilty right there. And then, well, they could get a longer jail sentence than him. Right. I mean, if you think about it, it's like, who's getting their kid weapons like that? And then telling them to hide the fact that they, they want to look for ammunition for it and everything. It's like, wow, sometimes you just have to raise your hand and go, I got a problem here, help. And, and other kids are dead because of that. It's just, it's heartbreaking. Because you, you failed to, many easy things you could have done right there to stop that, uh, and then we, I don't want him kicked out of school right now. He's staying in school. That, that, that goes to not just the parents, but the administrators too, for not making sure he left the school that day. Yeah. And I don't want to make it seem like we're saying every bad kid is because of a bad parent. That's no. not the case. There's sometimes there's just bad seeds that, that, that happen. And sometimes it's environmental. And there's a whole bunch of different reasons. But if there's obvious ones, that's part of parenting. You have to, you have to hoist the flag and say, I need help here. This is a problem. And I'm concerned about what this, what this could do to anybody else. And you have to be thinking beyond yourself in your own situation because tragically other lives were lost because of that. And it's just, like I say, it just leaves you with a sick feeling. Yeah, definitely. And like you said earlier, you have your neighbor's kids that also affect your kids. It takes the whole community to, to raise a child. So if you're raising yours right, it'll spread to those other kids that their parents are doing it right. It's all going to spread to better productive children as they go into society and you can ease back. Like you said, we don't quit at 18. You kind of ease back a little bit. You don't have to give as much anymore, but you're not going to let them fail either. You're going to, Hey, reel them back in. You want to stop what you're doing and think about what, what's going on right now and reevaluate and go forward. Or I think some parents, they, they have that mindset 18 and done 18 and done. That's when I lose my tax break. You're out of here. Yeah. It's really, it's a lifelong commitment. And I think, if you were going to do something, any kind of task, and someone said, okay, now wait a second, before you do this, I want you to know you're going to be responsible in some way for this for your entire life. Maybe some people would pump the brakes a little bit, <laughs> not be having children. And, and then, you know, how many children do people have? And how many are you capable of taking care of? Um, that's all part of it. And, it, you know, you don't want to tell somebody, hey, you can only have two. You can only, you know, government shouldn't be in our faces telling us much of anything. But we have to be responsible for doing our jobs well. And the better we can do our jobs, the less opportunity it is for other people to tell us how we have to do our jobs. But you leave that void where, okay, George isn't doing very well. We better step in and help him. Okay, now there's a problem. So that's, that should be incentive enough for people to want to do well, just to keep, keep government out of their lives. Definitely. Then, on, of course, on your other documentary, Last House Standing, I'm sure a lot of people gave you feedback on that one. Because everyone has opinions on that, that whole society, that whole world of the disaster and the leaning into it and getting prepared. What was your biggest critics of that? 
You know, the, the critics weren't as big on that as, as they would be with licensed to parent because licensed parent automatically makes you go, wait a second, you can't <laughs> license me. Everybody should be able to sit down and go, we want safer houses. Right. So who might be against the last house standing? Maybe builders, because they lobby to have building standards lower. They, they don't want, when you say, I'm, if you puff your chest out and go, hey, I build to code, thank you very much. That house isn't probably worth it because- we need to exceed the code in a lot of areas. And that should be the goal. Just saying I build the code. There's a lot of places with pretty lax building codes. So it could be builders. You know, I don't think we really bash realtors. What we're really encouraging in the film is that people take control of their destiny and don't reward mediocrity. You know, don't, especially in such a competitive market, if you don't buy the house, somebody else is going to buy it. But at least draw the line yourself and don't buy a crappy house for the wrong reasons. You know, do your get it inspected, find out what the vulnerabilities are, make sure you have the right insurance. So there's I don't think it was as there, people can't really be against that film. They could just say, yeah, it's overreach. We don't need tighter codes and all this stuff. But the statistics don't lie. All you have to do is look at all the damage. More Oklahoma got hit over a course of like eight or 10 years, four EF four or five tornadoes, powerful tornadoes. It took four of them for them to change the building code. Wow. But they finally did. And what they did was they made garage doors stronger. They made uh, different bracketing on the houses to attach to the foundation and to the, seal, to the, to the roof. So now, again, if you're in the bullseye of a major uh, tornado, that sucks and it's probably not going to go well. But if you live a mile to the right or a mile to the left or even less, the wind is significantly lower away from the center of the tornado. And those houses are surviving now. So you can cut down on the amount of damage. And then everybody in, in a tornado area, and it's a very small percentage that actually do. I don't know why they don't have storm cellars. Because that can make, make the difference between living and dying in uh, a storm. You know, it'll be interesting when they investigate the places where all the lo loss of life was. What was their evacuation? What was their warning? How, how could people have done it differently to not have so many lives lost from that. Um, and it's, it's just, it's, it's going to be a long time sorting all that out. And like the one place in Kentucky was a candle factory, 110 workers were missing that they can't find. Yeah. So, I mean, but where were the, where was the, the siren to warn people and where would they have gone if there was exactly the problem the is when you don't have a disaster for a long period of time, you get a little lax in, how you would handle that disaster. And this is armchair quarterbacking, and I'm not suggesting, well, everybody could have survived or anything like that. I think we'll have to find this out. What were this? This is where you, you, the, the work is done now to find out how things could have gone differently and if lives could have been saved. But all those things are important. You know, when you have an, an apartment complex, where do people evacuate? Some of the buildings they're building in Oklahoma. Um, had safe rooms down below it where 100, 150 people could go so the people in the apartment would evacuate underneath the building where they would be safe. And those kind of things need to be thought of in every situation. And when you don't, it, it, it ends up going badly. A disaster eventually seems to find most places. It's just a matter of when. So everybody should be focused on having a plan. Even if it's a sunny day and you go, it never is going to happen here. It doesn't mean it won't. In the late 90s, I was I was stationed right here in uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and I got orders to go to Kansas. And I said, oh, great, we're going to Tornado Alley. I've never been in a tornado. I've been in uh, hurricanes and stuff on the East Coast. I said, I know that stuff. 
So let me research tornadoes. So I started looking things up on tornadoes, what to do. Like you said, storm shelters and stuff like that. Uh, two weeks before we left here, a tornado hit here. So we got to witness one right here. See the devastating effects right here in uh, Clarksville, Tennessee. And then I went to Kansas and not one hit the whole time I was there. I said, it's just, that's insane. And then I leave and one hits there. Well, it's just luck, good luck or bad luck. Um, you know, when I was in Oklahoma, a bunch of times when we were shooting the film and, and I, I did another project there, a lot of the people I met had never seen a tornado. And you would think, wow, Oklahoma, they're probably dodging tornadoes every day. They see them all the time. So not everybody does. It's a small percentage of places that get hit by them. But when they get hit by them, it's a big deal. You know, it's like the odds of a hurricane hitting you aren't that great. But when it happens, it wipes out the whole area if it's bad. So you have to think forward to how would we handle that situation? What, what is our plan? And like I say, most, I don't know how often schools practice fire drills. I know sadly now they practice lockdowns for potential terrorist activity, but you really have to do that with the attitude that you take it seriously too, because right. it could be the, mean the difference between life or death. And it's hard to get people to take something serious until it happens. And then, and then it's too late. So, we have to find a way to make people more alert on the front side. We need to be proactive can be a lot less expensive than being reactive after any type of disaster. Exactly. And uh, like I said, if it's not happening in your house, you don't really can, you're not concerned about it until it actually does. And that's, that's when it's too late for a lot of people. And that's the sad truth about a lot of things in life here. Yeah, it, it is. It's human nature. You know, it's like we don't we don't think something bad is going to happen. Nobody leaves the house and goes, I think I'm going to get in a car accident today. <laughs> but when you do, you hope that your seatbelt was on, that your airbag works, that your car lives up to the standard that was set for it. Well, I think more thought goes into our cars than our houses a lot of times. So you obviously don't want to be in that car in a tornado. But my point is people are more concerned about that. They want to know. What did Consumer Reports say about it? They're not going to find out what it said about their house. Uh, they probably don't even know. They're just trusting the person that made it. And I can't tell you how many times we see crappy construction where you just you didn't get the best effort on that house. And it, unless you inspect the heck out of it, you're not going to know. Right, definitely. And if you like you said, most people, you look at the car, they'll come out with a printout from their pocket. Well, this says Consumer Reports said it was built for this and would stand to hit at 45 miles an hour at this angle so the airbag should work and employ. But they walk into a house, oh, it's pretty, let's buy it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, that you could say, well, there's, you know, they get a Carfax report on a car. What about on a house? And, yeah, they're supposed to disclose stuff. But how many people have a builder ever say, yeah, this house is crap, buy it? Um, <laughs> you know, we, all our trash from every worker through their lunch sacks in the wall and it's going to rot in five years. But go ahead. It's a great house and great it's neighborhood. It's going to be wonderful. <laughs> yeah, love you'll love years. it. <laughs> yeah, if it rains, if you get a couple of inches of rain, it's going to leak. But looks good on a sunny day. Nobody's going to tell you that. You got to do your own, own due diligence. You have to be your own best advocate. Definitely. And yeah, that's a great point. And uh, I think many homeowners, especially initial homeowners, need to learn that before they go into the process of buying. There's a lot of people, I don't want to get out of this apartment. I got to buy, I don't want to pay my own rent. I don't want to pay someone else's mortgage. I'm going to pay my own and just rush into something and they wind up with a disaster waiting to happen. Well, apartments can be more dangerous than houses because a lot of those are wood yes. buildings. And those things just become projectiles in a big storm. 
And people assume that they're insured because they're living in somebody else's apartment, but that may cover putting that building back, but nothing inside that apartment is covered by the owner of the building. Right. So you need to have renter's insurance. You need to know your evacuation plan. And in a lot of those buildings, I sure as hell would not want to be there in a hurricane, the danger of fire, you know, are there sprinklers working? Is there, is, are the stairwells concrete? You know, what's the plan for the elevator? If there's a fire, there's so many things you need to know because we saw last year with that building that collapsed in South Florida. Yeah. I mean, that was just negligence at its, at its best or worst. Worst. I mean, just, yeah. But I mean, the, an example of negligence of people knew that that building had problems, but still you think, yeah, it's not going to happen to me. And that's just horrible what happened there. I mean, it just, it's just, you can't even imagine what that was like for those people. It's just, just bad. That was uh, probably the worst way in the world to get woken up if they were asleep at the time. Feel like an earthquake and your whole building falling down right in front of you or with you. Yeah. The story of this one woman who woke up and when she was on the phone with her husband, who I think was out of town and she was talking to him about, she just saw the pool collapse and then the phone went dead because the building collapsed and she died. And that's just, wow. I mean, we're talking about so many sad things, but if people just realize that if you're in a building that looks like it has problems, demand that it get inspected, demand that something is done because how many people were there that assumed that the people in charge were looking out for them and they weren't. And when you demand those inspections, have an outside person do the inspection, not someone from the builder or the building management do it because then they're just going to get whatever they want them to say. Yeah. We put so much trust in people assuming that they're doing their jobs. (laughs) And if you think about it, that's pretty crazy. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. So that's why I encourage people to, to, to find out answers for themselves. And if you have a condo board demand that they find out the answers, demand that the inspections are done Um, in a house, you can control that more in a house. That's the downside of a condo, you know, in, in, um, in hurricane Michael, we interviewed a woman who lived in a duplex and the, the, the half that was the most destroyed was the person living next to her. And they said, they're not re- They just disappeared. They didn't come back. So she can't rebuild or get money to fix her unit. Cause they can't just fix half of a duplex. So now her, she had to sell it for a few thousand dollars. She lost a fortune. Wow. getting rid of it because it was never going to be rebuilt again. Um, so even something as simple as that, if you're in a townhouse community and that or they're all connected, you're only as good as the house next to you. And what is the policy for rebuilding if something bad happens there? Most people don't think about that. And we saw in Panama City, which is adjacent to Mexico Beach, that a lot of people should have thought about that. And it's usually people without the most financial means that are the most victimized by it. Uh, because somebody wealthy, they, w- yeah, when you lose all your possessions, that sucks no matter how wealthy you are, your heirlooms and things that you've had from a child, but at least you might have a means to get your life back together. For somebody who is uh, heavily leveraged to get into that place, that could mean the difference between how the rest of their life goes and being able to recover. So, you know, everybody's got to be on their A game and, and, and do as much as they can to, to try to avoid those things happening to them. Exactly. Uh, and George, where can people find this information from you? Is it on the move the move the world films org site? Yeah, if you go to move the world org, you can find our podcast, you can find both of my films that are for rent on the website. And it also has a link to my other website, 
for The Last House Standing, it's thelasthousestanding.org. And there's a resource page on there that I encourage everybody to check out because you can get a lot of great information about how you can have your house inspected and, and do things to try to be as safe as possible. But on movetheworldfilms.org, that's where you can, can see the podcast, sign up to get the latest information. Um, we have a monthly newsletter where we're not marketing you anything other than information that you might find interesting. Um, and I just encourage people to check it out. I'd love for them to check out the podcast, check out the films, and um, you can email me. Let me know your thoughts. If you have ideas of things you want to see or things you don't agree with, I'm open-minded. If there's something I did wrong and, and I missed it, tell me because I'd like to get it right the next time. Or if they have something of value to, that you can add in to add more value to your work, that'd be awesome as well. Absolutely. I'm clearly, it's been established time and again, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but <laughs> I'm, I will learn. So if there's something I need to fix, I want to fix it. Definitely. I think we're all that way. Uh, George, thanks again for taking some of your time to be on the Misfit Nation and have a great rest of your day. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Awesome. You know how we do this. Thanks for taking some of your time to spend with us on Fit Nation. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and share the link as much as possible. If you want to, please become a supporter to help us carry this thing on. We appreciate you. If you know someone that brings that energy, has a great story, is an up-and-comer in the industry of music, in the arts, have them reach out to us on TheMisfitNation.com. We will get back to them within one day and get them on here so they can share their story with the world. As always, till next time, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling. Because we are... Fit, 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 fit Nation.